0: Alright, so as an introduction to today's message, I want to invite you to pick up your bulletin and look at the front cover. Somebody tell me, what is the title of the sermon? Anybody? Thank you. And what's the subtitle? Okay, unescapable judgment why it's good news. Kind of a shocking statement, right? Kind of oxymoronic, like two things melded together in one statement that shouldn't go together. Kind of like Jim Harbaugh and classy. Or the this, or this statement, I know, let's make a quick trip to Bellingham Costco. Things that just don't normally go together. When you think of... Biblical judgment. If I just throw that out there. Biblical judgment. What comes to your mind? Fire and brimstone. What is it? Vindication. Anything else? Hell. Fire. What about the questions that come up? What about the people that have never heard of Jesus? Or how could God do this? Right And... And how does it make you feel that one of the... You can't read the Gospels and not get confronted with the fact that Jesus, on multiple occasions, talks about some form of judgment. How does that make you feel? Maybe maybe embarrassed? I mean, I don't know. It's kind of one of those things when you're talking to people... I don't like that part of the gospel perhaps. Or, or maybe you're confused by it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. If God is this God of love, then how could there be this judgment thing? Or, or how could God do this? And then how do you handle that in your mind? Like as you're maybe at home by yourself and you're reading through the gospels and oh, I, I, you know, I like that part about loving people and don't commit adultery. Okay, that's a good one. And then, um, oh, there's a narrow gate and few enter through it, uh, but there's a broad way and many will enter through it and it leads to destruction. I don't know what to do with that. What do you what do you kind of do with that? Do you just skip over until you get to the next good part? Or do you kind of deny it? Or do you ignore it? You know what I'm saying? Like, So be thinking about that as we work through this. Because this evening we're going to look at a passage at the end of Matthew 13 and it is the last of the parables in this chapter. And that means... Before we even read this, the fact that it is in Matthew 13 and it is a parable about the kingdom means that it is good news. Alright, just stay with me. I'll try and prove it to you. Um, it's good news of the coming kingdom of heaven. So please stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. I'm going to read chapter or verse 47 through 52. Jesus said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up onto the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out of the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. Lord, please help us (laughs) with this passage, I pray, Holy Spirit, uh, that the things you want us to take in and receive, we would... And whatever I say that is wrong, or uh, Lord, that it, you would protect us from, from those things. Lord, mostly we want to hear you. And we pray that you would change us with this text. Uh, that you would cause us to uh, want to more wholeheartedly follow you and to receive your love. Amen. You may be seated. I read quite a few verses there. It's hard when you read through those verses, though, not just to dwell on a couple words like furnace of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That kind of language is so foreign to us, except for the Frasers who just had to replace the furnace at their house. Sorry about that. but So they know about furnaces. But, but that type of language, you know, being thrown into a furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's not stuff... That we talk about all the time. So how do we approach this text? What's my answer always? Let's try and understand the context, right? Jesus doesn't start with furnaces and weeping and gnashing of teeth either. He starts by focusing on life. Jesus comes announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't come announcing weeping. Jesus comes gathering people to follow him and to receive the kingdom. He does not go on a hunt to find people he can judge. You don't see him like gathering the disciples and saying, Hey, let's go find people we can throw into the furnace. Jesus teaches His disciples to love one another and explicitly teaches them not to judge one another for in the way we judge we will be judged. And by our standard of measure it will be measured to us, right? So Jesus preaches primarily the good news of rescue which is the kingdom and the good news of God's rescuer which is Jesus Himself. And interestingly it's at the end of the Jesus' long teachings about the kingdom in Matthew, it's at the end of each of those long teachings where Jesus then gives us a warning. Now, who do you warn? You usually warn people you love and you care about. You might sum up Jesus' warnings like this. And I'm paraphrasing Jesus here, so... I've just shared with you the words and deeds that bring life. Words and deeds of the kingdom of heaven. I've invited you to follow me. Choose life. If you don't choose life, you yourself will be the one choosing death. Death so horrible, judgment so severe, words like fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth come to mind as inadequate descriptions. Now, Jesus is a genius at taking complex ideas and mixing them with common everyday examples. He talks about crops and seeds with people who are used to farming, who live around farms all their life. And in Matthew 13, 1 and 2, we learn that Jesus is doing this very teaching by the sea. In those days, before people had supermarkets, you basically ate what you had available. So if you lived by the sea, you knew a thing or two about fishing. And, to go a little bit further, Jesus' many of his disciples were fishermen. Peter, James, and John, we know for a fact, were fishermen. So he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, and gathering fish of every kind, and it goes on. A dragnet. A net. First of all, nets are symbolic of God's judgment throughout the scriptures. For example, the prophet, the, the prophet Habakkuk describes Babylon as an encompassing net that will cover Israel and, and be their judgment. Ezekiel 32, 32, 3 speaks of God's net as judgment over Pharaoh. So there is God's judgment over a foreign king. But this particular net that Jesus is talking about isn't just any old net, it's a dragnet. And dragnets were different than the kind of nets you take out on a boat and just cast into the sea. One end of a dragnet was connected to shore with a big heavy stake driven deep into the sand. Then a boat would take the other end of the dragnet out and make a huge semicircle and bring it back to the shore on the other side. The bottom of the net was weighted with lead weights. The top of the net floated with cork bobbers. And then what you would do when the net was a semicircle is you would draw this whole thing in. And the thing about a dragnet, compared to other nets, is that it's indiscriminate. Whatever it is in that dragnet's uh, circumference is coming into shore. Crabs, fish of all kinds, rocks, starfish, whatever it is. Everything is coming in with this dragnet. In relation to the kingdom of heaven, the metaphor of the dragnet symbolizes the all-encompassing nature of the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying is it doesn't really matter if you believe in the kingdom of heaven or not, because when the kingdom of heaven, at the end of the age, when it is consummated, it will encompass all of creation. Nothing will escape. The kingdom is a reality for every living creature, for every ounce of ocean, for the peak of every mountain, for the stream at the bottom of every valley. Nothing will be untouched. One day, every person, every place, everything will know the reality of the king and the kingdom. So, what will happen? Well, for the people who live by the sea and knew fishing, one of the most common sights they would see on a daily basis is the sorting process. Jewish law was strict about what kinds of things you could eat and not eat. And when it came to fish, you could eat the fish with scales. Well... Not all fish have scales. You have rays and eels. You have shellfish that will come up in this net. So a Jewish fisherman gets all of this sea life in his net on the beach, tosses out the ones without the scales, tosses out the shellfish they're not allowed to eat, and keeps only the good fish or the kosher fish. So Jesus' message is this. So it will be at the end of the age. The end of the age... Another word, a phrase that we don't use all the time. But to a first century Jew, that was a technical term. Every good first century Jew heard end of the age would know that that is when God's kingdom would come in its fullness. When evil would be judged, when the righteous would live in peace with each other and with their God. It was the time when the angels would separate the wicked out of the presence of the righteous. That was the end of the age. So when Jesus says end of the age, all of those images of kingdom and judgment and righteousness and peace come flooding in to their minds and those wicked Jesus says will be thrown into a furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth what is that about do you think that God has a furnace in his backyard that he's waiting to fill with wicked people And which is it? Is it a furnace or is it a lake of fire like it describes in Revelation? Or is it Gehenna, the burning garbage dump in southern Israel as he describes in the Sermon on the Mount? Which is it? Well, let's try and describe what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to warn people. And you warn people you love. You warn people you care about. And second, let's look at the images that Jesus chooses to use to describe the judgment of the wicked. Furnace, lake of fire, Gehenna, all have to do with fire. And fire is a rich, rich metaphor in Scripture. First, fire is a metaphor for judgment. It's used as a symbol of God's very holy presence. It's used as a symbol of purification, burning off imperfections so that only beauty and purity remain. Jesus is drawing on these common metaphors, not giving us a blueprint for the layout of hell. And by the way, there is no word in the New Testament for hell. Hell is a word that we've used to describe things like lake of fire, Gehenna, and furnace of fire. The problem is that we've become influenced by popular culture about what hell really means. And so when we hear that word hell or we think about it, we read into the Bible what popular culture has told us. And what has influenced our picture of hell? Things like Dante's Inferno. And pictures on the top of different chapels and cathedrals where you've got devils and forked tails and pitchforks and demons grabbing people. This is all uh, renditions of Scripture, but now we've kind of taken these things and read them into Scripture. So take Gehenna, for example. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your right eye makes you stumble pluck it out and throw it from you for I say to you it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna in your English Bible it says hell Gehenna is the word there Gehenna is an actual place on earth before Israel moved into the land of Palestine Gehenna was the place where pagans would sacrifice their children to the god Molech. When the the Jews took over that land, that part was cursed because of the human sacrifice that had occurred there. No Jews would live there. So what do you do with a place that you can't live in? They began putting their garbage there. Their refuse year after year after year. And as that biomass decomposed, jets of methane begin to come up. And they begin to torch off. And it was literally a place of perpetual fire. Gehenna so Jesus is trying to describe the fate of those who would not trust in him and he wanted to get his point across what more horrifying place could you imagine as a first century Jew who knew about Gehenna than a garbage dump that's perpetually on fire in the book of Daniel Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar so he sentenced them to death in what? fiery furnace right but since they remained loyal to God they didn't die in fact God came in and joined them in the furnace and they came out unscathed here Jesus turns the metaphor around not to follow Jesus is just as bad as idolatry it would be like turning your back on the father himself it will lead to judgment So here the idea is not that there's necessarily a literal furnace to be tossed into. Under that logic we might expect that when Jesus returns that we're all going to be caught in a literal net. Do you see pictures of that ever being drawn? Have you ever seen a film where a net covers everyone? No, we don't tend to focus on that part. So we see the net as a metaphor which doesn't make it any less real that the kingdom encompasses all things, right? It's just that do we really think a net's going to grab us? In the same way, we don't think judgment is not real, but do we really think it's a literal furnace or a lake of fire or a garbage dump where we're going to go? Just because Jesus was using metaphors doesn't mean we at all should discount what he's saying. If anything, judging by the extreme metaphors Jesus does use, we should take him very seriously. What we want to do is avoid two very common errors. The first error is we want to avoid being overly specific about the fate of the wicked or what it's going to look like. I think, this is my personal thing, I think there's far too much overconfidence out there that is t- about what hell is going to be like that's actually turned into essential church doctrine. You can go to some church websites and their core statement in faith might say we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, we believe in the Holy Scriptures, we believe that the wicked will be judged in hell with a conscious, eternal torment in the flames of fire. Beware of trying to figure out the landscape of hell or the temperature when Jesus is describing these horrible things in metaphor. There are brothers and sisters in Christ out there who seem almost a little too happy to describe hell in all its detail and try and tell us all the people who are going to occupy it. Notice that in all of these parables of judgment, it's not you and I are who are doing the judging, it's the angels who are doing the judging. Second, we err gravely on the other end of the spectrum if we simply ignore Jesus' warnings because we don't like them. We don't get to not, we can not like them, but we don't get to discount them because they're unsavory to our palate, right? Some people stop short and they say, oh, these are metaphors. They're not like literal furnaces. Good, I don't have to believe in judgment. Ah, that is not the kind of leash we get with this statement. It's clearly not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus is saying is that hell or judgment is real and it is also not an oops, I accidentally didn't make it. It's not a matter of, oh, I guess I'll wait till the celestial net when that gets me and I'll find out then if I'm a good fish or a bad fish. What Jesus is saying is look at the opportunity I'm giving you and choose life. Every single one of us, right now, all the time, we are never in neutral. Even if you think, I'm just putting my feet up and... Watching Downton Abbey tonight or something. We're never in neutral. We are always... Yes, I do watch Downton. Uh, We are always being formed or deformed. Okay? So we're made in God's image. We're broken by sin. And part of the promise of salvation is not just that we're forgiven. Like you get an eye... You know, you get like a clean slate card. But also that the Spirit would come and make us how we were intended to be, fully human, fully like Christ. He is the most human human who ever lived. He's what we were supposed to be like. He's the trajectory of where we're going. And so the decisions we make, the things we dwell on, the relationships we have, they're all either forming us or deforming us. In the end, when the kingdom comes in full, it is going to be a time of peace of living in right relationship with each other, and most importantly, right relationship with God, face to face. Those who are citizens of the kingdom, long for this time. Ask yourself right now, don't even want to see your reaction, do you long for that? Do you hope, beyond hope, for a time of genuine peace, of walking in fellowship, of getting to walk with the Lord, of all of the broken, weird relationships we have, all the insecurities to be vanished and to walk in pure life, real life. I long for it. And if you long for that, I don't think you have much to worry about. If you're longing for that in Christ, you sound like a citizen of the kingdom to me. Yeah, rejoice. Rejoice. You and I aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we are on that trajectory, right? We want to be like Jesus. We want to be in the kingdom. Now there are others. And maybe you've been in this place. Before God really reached out and rescued me and changed my heart, I was in a dark place. And there are people in a dark place who don't want God meddling in their affairs, bent on evil, They could not imagine a worse hell than having to be with God all the time. They're deforming themselves by choosing to dwell on dark thoughts, practicing evil and dehumanizing deeds. They're on a trajectory toward destruction. So, here's a crazy metaphor if we pick up the fish thing again in the net. So so we're all in this net and it's time for the end. It's time for judgment. And there's two environments that God has for us, Right? God's kingdom will maybe be like a sea of warm water. I kind of like warm water. Uh, no, so this is maybe my vision of the kingdom. I like to snorkel to you. But God's kingdom will be a sea of warm water. You're fish now, okay? Warm water where there's no predators. And it's clear visibility. I don't know, a thousand feet. I don't even know if you can see that far. But like, it's just so clear. And you never are anxious. No one's out to get you. There's no predators in the water. Oh, it's such peaceful. And it will be a a sea of total... I would say tranquility, but doesn't that like on the moon? But anyway, it will be a sea of complete peace, security. There's going to be a reef there where God Himself comes out to hang out with us all the time and He wades through and we're not afraid of Him. We go right up to Him and we get to be with the Father. But for the other fish that are maybe bent on destruction, these fish hate the light. And so there's a sea prepared for them, a deep sea, a black sea, a dark sea, a cold sea. And in this sea, everyone is a predator. Just imagine yourself there. Everyone's a predator, everyone is prey. Paranoia is the water you swim in. And God may come to visit, He wants to visit. And He puts on His headlamp because it's so far and so dark. But when the people or the fish see that headlight coming, they fear. And they think, oh no, it's an alien predator out to get me. And they cower behind the rocks, mistaking the Father for something evil. It's not that God is mad or evil or withholding good for them. It's in their state of deformity, of deformed character, they they can no longer perceive the truth. And just to throw out there for those of you who are big Narnia fans, think, think the shed where the dwarves are in in the last battle. Uh, Aslan is there trying to offer a delicious meal. Just come into my kingdom. And they think, you know, it all tastes hideous and someone's out to get them. So here's another image if the fish thing didn't work for you. I just thought that up late at night. Uh, but <laughs> another image would be this. In this world where there's wheat and tares living together, where good fish and bad fish dwell, God sends the sun and the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, doesn't it? It says that in the Sermon on the Mount. The sun comes up, the seasons change, the world keeps on spinning, all because of God's general providence. You don't have to do anything to receive that. You can be the most evil, wicked person in the world, and God takes care of you to some degree. It's His His provenient grace. It's His general goodwill towards all of His children. Life is a gift. God cares for the atheist just as He does the most passionate disciple of Jesus. God is unfair in His blessing. He's better than He has to be. Better than most of us would be. He's good to all. He allows us minds that work. He even allows the most skeptical, hateful person's mind to work. He keeps evil in check, I think, in ways we don't even realize. The angels standing up and fighting against the forces of I mean, if, if God were to withdraw His hand, the mass chaos that this world would be, I can't imagine it. And those who want to be with Him, who love Him now, will be with Him more fully and more intimately and more gloriously than ever before when the end of the age comes. But those who want nothing to do with God or His Son Jesus will get their wish. And what if those great minds all of a sudden who were spurning God all their life, what if, what if that mind was taken away? What if people were rendered insane? What if there was a place where evil was left unchecked? What if in that place there was constant fear where no one looked out for each other? What if it was a place devoid of love except for the longing for love like a distant memory that you used to have? That is a horrible horrible thought you know in our culture we say things like how could a loving God sentence someone to a hell like that or I hear I don't want to know a God who judges people and what I found fascinating in studying this passage is that for many people in the world and I'm not just talking about ancient people I'm talking about today in many other cultures around the world people don't really have a problem with Jesus' judgment does that, that shocked me when I found that out. Because you know for many people, like you take a uh, Middle Eastern culture for example, no, that's not even a culture, excuse my ignorance, but just uh, many, many people in, in the Middle East, they don't have a problem at all with judgment. Of course God is going to judge, duh. You know what people have a bigger problem with? The passages that you and I like. Like turn the other cheek, and if anyone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Because in a context where your honor and your shame is everything, if someone shames your sister and you don't go on a vendetta, like if you turn the other cheek, that is unthinkable. But judgment, that's quite normal. In fact, most religions have ways of dealing with judgment. I mentioned before sacrificing those kids to Molech. That was a way that people thought that they could get out of judgment, out of the cycle of judgment. Judgment is part of almost every major religion, almost every culture has an element of judgment. And it's just basically in our egocentric Western world where we have a big problem with that, don't we? And so i got to ask the question, and Tim Keller asked this in his book, Reason for God. What makes us think that we're so special and so enlightened that everyone else is wrong about judgment? Why do we have such a problem with it? I've actually got another take on this too. I don't think our culture is as against judgment as we like to think it is. And you can see it bursting out in our literature... Bursting out in our film and our music, it's interesting. I have these like kind of distant side cousin-y, second, third cousin relatives that are super into like heavy metal. Like they have this newborn daughter, and she has this like everything has skulls on it, and it's like all death. They are the nicest parents. They're just sweet. They're thoughtful. They're good to their family. They're good to the parents. And I just but they posted this video that they were letting their um. Their little baby daughter watches. Just ridiculous! Like the, the most horrifying music video of this crazy clown with a knife or whatever. And it's like, what is the disconnect here? What what is this sense of judgment on the world? And, and that's kind of a vague example. But you can look at this in terms of uh, in terms of pop culture. Like, look at all the end of the world films right now. With the, all the basic premise, we have done wrong. To our planet and to each other and now the world is in chaos. Or all the alien invasion movies are something like this. Like, we're an arrogant culture who thought we were all in control. We, did, we, we thought we had utopia going and then we weren't ready for the aliens. Or another one would be um, a <clears throat> uh, it all down here. <laughs> zombie. Oh yeah, the whole zombie thing is pretty crazy. So, oh yeah, we're tinkering with genetics, or however the zombies come about. There's always a different like reason that they come about. But in the end, it's this apocalyptic sense of we are reaping what we've sown as a civilization. We did this. We caused this evil, and now it's unleashed. And of course, the films always focus on like the survival aspect or the love sequence. But what is the big overarching message? That we have caused these disasters, caused these apocalypse, these types of things. I think that's an underlying insecurity we have as a people, that we're going to reap what we sow. One of my favorite directors is Paul Thomas Anderson. And I'll just give this caveat. I don't recommend any of his movies to you. They're pretty raw and gritty. I happen to think he's brilliant. And in one of his films, one of my favorite films is Magnolia. Again, I'm not recommending this to you. But it follows this intertwined relationships of several broken human beings. And Anderson doesn't just direct these films. He writes the scripts too. He writes these characters. And this is an interview that he had uh, with the magazine. It said... It's the first time when I've been able to, uh, at the end of a film, to actually hate one of my characters. There's a man in in one of his, in the film that just doesn't repent. He does these horrible things, and and Anderson continues. There's truly a sense of moral judgment at work with this character. I can't even let him kill himself at the end of the movie. He's got to burn. And the way that this happens is he's in the kitchen and he's about ready to to take his own life and. It begins to rain frogs out of the sky, out of the heavens, and they break through a skylight, knock over a toaster. Sorry if I'm spoiling this for you. but it and burns up the whole kitchen, and this man dies in the kitchen. The interesting thing to me is that Paul Thomas Anderson is about the last guy you would think of uh, to write anything about God's judgment. He is a complete worldly pagan. I mean, you could read about him online, all those kind of relationships, the things that he writes about. But in almost all of his films, he has this knack of getting, A, I think he does characters really well, like they're just believable people, but B, he has this sense of right and wrong, and that his evil characters in his movies, he has this sense they have to have judgment. And where does that come from? From a person who doesn't, Who doesn't worship Jesus at all? doesn't even necessarily acknowledge God? I think it's something that we know deep down is a reality. Now let's step back a moment and get our bearings. Who's Jesus speaking with when he's talking about judgment? At least Jewish people who knew God... And oftentimes to his disciples who he'd been teaching personally for a while. The people of God. That's who he's talking to. And what's interesting, I kind of go off on a tangent here, but you don't see Paul, who's reaching out to people who don't know the story of God, you don't see him starting off talking about judgment. In fact, with Paul, it is the kindness of God who leads people to repentance, Right? And with John, who is the gospel writer who writes to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles, John doesn't necessarily use language like this. He uses language like life, abundant life. What's fascinating is that To Jesus' audience, there was nothing shocking about judgment at all. If you read the Psalms and the Prophets, the people of Israel looked forward to judgment. Judgment meant victory for them. It meant God would come and dwell among them. It meant their oppressive enemies would be defeated. So why is this so shocking? Because Jesus' Jewish audience, who are the people of God, Assumed that at the end of the age, when the net came, right, that they would be the good fish. And Jesus was saying, beware, you are not necessarily good fish because you're born Jewish. You are good fish if you trust and follow Jesus. You're not necessarily good fish if you grew up in church. You're not necessarily good fish if you go through the motions. You're a good fish if you trust and follow Jesus. Faith in Jesus and obedience to Jesus marks the good fish from the bad, the righteous from the unrighteous. Jesus said things like this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the gate. I am standing before you. I am the treasure in the field. I am the pearl of great value. Follow me. If you don't, you will live in eternal regret. You will weep and gnash at your teeth at the opportunity you missed out on. And the incredible news for the nations is this. One has died on your behalf. Jesus, the Son of God, has died that all might be free to be with Jesus on the last day. You guys, you're part of this church and we talk about grace and God's love all the time. I just kind of want to smack us for a minute and shake us up and remind us how rare... That is. You know, when Paul's talking to Gentile people, the Greeks and their philosophy, they believe that only a select few were born with enough internal spark that you were born with enough enlightenment to one day escape judgment. Everyone else, the people who had any kind of disability, if you were just an average person, if you didn't have the spark, if you weren't smart enough or enlightened enough, you weren't judged. You were nothing. They would have nothing to do with you. There was absolutely no hope for you. You know what a gift it is that because Jesus took the initiative and died on the cross for you and me that everyone has an option. This is not an exclusive religion Christianity. This is not something like you're not in. This is everyone can be in. And that's why Jesus is so bent on not only spreading the good news of the kingdom but calling disciples like you and me to spread the good news of the kingdom. This is not about who's in and who's out. This is about everyone's invited. Come to the party. If you miss on this, oh, you're going to be regretting it. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. So why is unescapable judgment good news? Because judgment is the term used for the day of the Lord. The day when death is judged. It's the day when wars are judged and cease to exist. It's the day when evil is judged and the evil one cast down once and for all. It is the day when disease is judged. Amen. We've got enough of that going on. It is the day when mental illness is done with. It is the day when physical deformities are no more. They are judged and gone, and everyone will receive new bodies, glorious bodies that don't break down, that don't get sick. <sighs> Tommy, you can just run like marathon. You can do whatever, man. Never get tired. So ask yourself, if Jesus returned right now, and don't don't be fooled, He could. If today was the end of the age, what kind of fish would you be? Are you at least on a trajectory of being formed into the image of Jesus? And I just want to leave you with this: Are you on a trajectory of being formed into the image of Jesus? You're probably like, Yeah, I, I hope so. I'm here. I want to ask you something more specific. What is your plan? Seriously, seriously, what is your plan? And if you were talking to a financial planner, if I was your financial planner, which I would not be, uh, and you were to say, oh, "I want to, I have this goal, and I want to, I want to save one hundred thousand dollars in the next thirty years," I would not let you leave my office until you. Well, what's your plan? How are you going to do that? Where are you going to cut? Where are you going to save? Right? It just makes sense. If you have a goal, you make plans to achieve it. And I, I feel like a lot of times in the church, we just kind of, well, I just kind of go to church and I hear a decent sermon and I think I'm being formed I don't know do you have a plan? do you have a plan? do you you, I want to read the scripture on a regular basis what does that mean? what's regular for you? once a month? twice a week? this is not a thing where I'm like okay you need to turn in this regimented thing but I'm just asking you rhetorically do you have a plan? and if not let's talk about that or talk to someone you trust talk to someone whose life you respect and you can tell that maybe they have a plan what would that look like to intentionally be formed like Christ if you're hearing this and you're like you know what I think I'm stuck I am being deformed I'm on a path to destruction I'm becoming less and less like Christ this is not the end. Not yet. Hear Jesus calling us to repent, to trust, to lean on Him for forgiveness and new life. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, where to where to begin? I, I I'm appreciative of the reality that your kingdom is all-encompassing. I, I don't know, I just have this sense, sometimes a feeling I would be left out of things, that you'd pick everyone else but me. I know as I talk to other people, there's that sense as well. I'm thankful that you will leave no stone unturned, nothing will be left out. I'm also thankful, Lord, that your kingdom doesn't rely on me, that, uh, that you've paid the price on the cross. And I ask that you would help me and each one of us to put our weight there. To put our trust in you, Jesus, for what you've done. And I pray for grace uh, to want to want to be more like you. To take seriously our formation, Lord. I pray even now that you would give ideas to each one. Vision for what? What a plan of formation might look like, Lord. What is one step? Would you give us that gift, God? Holy Spirit, would you give that idea to each one of us what a next step might be? Thank you for this incredible, incredible offer at New Life. And I am thankful that it's not just for a select few. But it's for all who would receive it. Lord, help us to be about your work of sharing the good news. Amen.